So brief review, I just want these to kind of be stuck in your minds. Uh, pitfall number one, skipping that all important step. I hope I've convinced you in this class to consider friendship dating. Um, if, what, if what keeps marriages together is friendship, then it would be foolish to skip that step. We should start with friendship. It's almost more important to make sure the relationship has a friendship than many other things we jump into. So don't skip friendship, but understand you're looking for a match. Now, would you are, you've all met, a, you all have friends that aren't matches, right? You all have friends you would never marry because you're not matches. And I'm guessing you all love someone of the opposite gender that you also couldn't marry because there's deal breakers. And so what is it that you're looking for? Pitfall number two is to misunderstand the purpose of dating is to find a match and understanding what is a match, which led us to some other pitfalls. But pitfall number three, don't let your heart jump to six. One of the most painful things, I have a front row seat, all that I watched my children do it. I've watched my students do it. I've watched so many people I care about. As soon as they jump into a relationship, where does their heart go? It jumps to six. And they're already expecting marriage and planning on marriage. And then if there's a deal breaker and it breaks the deal, they're shattered. And so make sure you allow time for the relationship to decide, is this a match? Don't let your heart go to six. That's pitfall number three. Pitfall number four was inappropriate dating. And that is doing the wrong things at the right, the, the, where the level, at the level you're at. If you're on a date with a one, don't be dating like your fours. If you're on a date with a four, don't be dating like your ones. So we talked about every level. What's appropriate for that level? Pitfall number five now starts to ask the question, are we a match? Do you know the difference between being in love and love? Being in love will not carry you throughout your life. That emotion will fade. And far too many people end their marriage at that point because they don't know the difference between being in love and love. So we talked about that, pitfall number five. Number six is to consider that perhaps your best match isn't someone like you. My guess is you've been looking for someone like you. We hang out with people like us. We date with the people we hang out. We marry the people we date. And so there's a vicious cycle of marrying people just like us. And maybe your best companion is someone who sees what you don't see. Pitfall six is not considering what you need. A need is a necessary difference. A pitfall is a necessary similarity. I, nest, I need us to be on the same page here. And that becomes a, 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 a deal breaker, not a pitfall, a deal breaker. Pitfall number seven is not jumping in when you should because you have some preconceived notion and you've eliminated people that are very much possible matches. But in your head, you've already eliminated them, meaning you've put a preference on the deal breaker list. What is really a preference, you've made into a deal breaker and you're narrowing your pool. I worry that far too many of you have narrowed your pool because you're just not even considering people that would be very good matches. Pitfall number eight is not jumping out when you should. Recognizing that if, if there's a deal breaker, if something's gonna break the deal, when should it break the deal? Sooner than later. And sometimes we naively just simply say, no, it's gonna be fine. How many couples have divorced because they just naively assumed that it was going to be okay and then it broke the deal? Pitfall number nine has to do with repentance and change and allowing people to change. I hope I've convinced you that you are going to marry a sinner. And so will they. And if you expect perfection, you are a hypocrite 
because you are not offering that. You are not offering that to your spouse. You should not then expect it of your spouse. And so we talked about allowing change, but pitfall number nine is also recognizing when change is not going to occur and people are not going to change. So now that leads us to pitfall 10. Any thoughts, comments, one through nine, as you've thought about them? I assume they're up on the website, even though we all missed two weeks, I think. Last week's is not up yet. I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, you're all good. But it will be. We've got our homework for after this to catch up. Yes. Last week's, the second half of Pitfall 9 is not up yet, but the first half of 9 is. Okay. So. Okay. So now let's do Pitfall 10, which really is not... I do it last because I want you to think about this as you leave the class, not because it's building in any type of order. Um, I really could begin with pitfall 10. We could fit pitfall 10 any along the way. If you ask me, pitfall 10 is a massive circle, massive pitfall that we all fall into in so many different areas of our life. So allow me to be very, very broad because of, and I think you'll understand why when we jump into it. Allow me to take a very, very broad approach because pitfall 10 has more to do with life and living in the latter days than, than we realize. And so we'll do dating. We'll, we'll do dating the last 10 minutes. But give me the next half an hour to build up to the last 10 minutes, okay? How many people have asked Jesus about his second coming? How many people have asked the Savior about the second coming? And quite often, what's the answer? I'm not going to tell you. Joseph Smith asked repeatedly about the second coming. Do you remember what the answer was? Some phony baloney thing about if you could live to be 85, then you'd see the face of the Son of Man. And Joseph's interpretation of that was what? Stop asking. Stop asking. I'm not going to tell you, Joseph. How many times did the Lord not tell them? Acts chapter 1, will thou now, will, you know, are you going to restore Israel right now? Not going to tell you. So many times Jesus did not answer the question, tell me about the second coming. But one time he did. There is one time in recorded scripture, one time in recorded scripture where Jesus was asked and answered, let me tell you about the second coming. The last week, which we just came out of in Come Follow Me, the last week of his life, on Tuesday, he spent all day in the temple. And he mentioned things like, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Remember those types of, the, what are the two great commandments? Coming out of the temple, they, st they paused. No, the last thing he said to the Jews is the next time you see me will be when I'm coming in the clouds of glory you will see me coming in the clouds of glory. Then as they walked out and went home, they stopped at the temple and Jesus pointed out the massive stones that made up the temple. And he basically said, all these are coming down. This temple is going to be destroyed. So then they went out to the Mount of Olives, just Jesus and his disciples. And, he, and they asked him questions. Two specific questions. Now, we're going to read them in Joseph Smith in, in Matthew chapter 24. But Joseph is going to make so many changes, and the significance of this is so great that we've put it in the Scriptures. We've put the Joseph Smith change for this chapter in the Scriptures. It's in your Pearl of Great Price. We need to turn to Joseph Smith Matthew. Now, let me, this is going to be very important in just a minute. We are reading the JST of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Tuesday night of his last week, when Jesus finished his teachings, comes out to the Mount of Olives, and they ask him two questions. So open up your Pearl of Great Price, go to chapter 1, Matthew, Joseph Smith, Matthew, and go to verse 4. Do you see the two questions? Do you see the two questions they ask the Savior? Number one, 
It's a two-parter. Both of them are two-parters. But what's the two-parter? That's the second question. Give me the first one. When are the walls coming down? When is the temple coming down? You just said that the temple is going to be destroyed. When will the temple be destroyed? When's the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jews? The answer, which we can say now looking back, was 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus would send his army in and slaughter the Jews. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD when Titus came in and slaughtered it. Now what's the second question? What is the sign of thy coming or the end of the world? Can we sit at your feet and talk about the second coming? Now, I'm going to make an assumption here, and you tell me if you, if, if you think that I'm safe in my assumption. If we're going to ask the Savior about his concerns over the latter days, the first thing out of his mouth is his greatest concern. That's my assumption. If I were to ask you that if you loved a movie and I said, what did you love about the movie? My assumption is the first thing you're going to tell me is what you loved most. I think Jesus is giving his concerns in the order of his concern. So let's ask the Savior, what are your biggest concerns about living in the latter days? He starts question two at the semicolon in verse 21. So find the semicolon in 21. Read the rest of 21 and all of 22. And you tell me, what is the Savior's number one concern about those of us who live in the latter days? Sending his choice spirits to earth during the latter days. Here's my biggest concern. What is it? Fooled by an imitation. His biggest concern is that we are going to be fooled by an imitation. And who does he, who does he say? Even who will be fooled? Even the very elect according to the covenant are going to be fooled by an imitation. Now, that's a major theme of the scriptures, fooled by an imitation. We've got the tree of life. And then the imitation. And some people are fooled by the imitation, let go of the rod and go over to the building. In the book of Revelation, there's the woman clothed in the sun that represents the church and she has a cup in her hand and it has wine in it. The wine of the sacrament cup. There's another woman in the book of Revelation, the harlot. She also has a cup in her hand and there's also wine in it. And her wine is intoxicating. Are you fooled by an imitation? Now, here's what's fascinating. Remember how Nephi was allowed to see the latter days, but not write about it? I'll show you, but you're not going to write it. Who was going to write it? John the Beloved was going to write it. The book of Revelation is the Lord's version that he wants us to have. But wouldn't it have been much better if Nephi had written it? Man! <laughs> It's really good, and I love it. But it went through the great and abominable. It lost plain and precious truths. And so now it's a puzzle that has to be put together, which I think is, is the reason. Yes. So Nephi saw it, but couldn't write it, right? But it didn't, it didn't stop Nephi from hinting at it. Nephi couldn't write the vision, but he could teach truths that he learned. So go to first, keep your finger. Now, yeah, we need, we're going to need Joseph Smith Matthew. Keep, open up a new page and go to 1 Nephi chapter 21. Nephi, who says, I can't tell you what happens, but let me tell you some interesting things I observed. Look at verse 13. You and I all have the end of the world wrong. And we're led astray by superhero movies. <laughs> Superhero movies make us believe that in the end, good will defeat evil. That that's how the world ends. Good gets beaten up for a while, and then in the end, good beats up evil. That is not how the world ends. Nephi saw it and says, that's not how the world ends. Look at verse 13. How does the world end? Good does not defeat 
evil. Tell me how the world ends. First Nephi twenty two thirteen. Oh, Sorry. My salt. Like Narnia started by song and the world ends by song. Verse 13, how does the world end? Chapter 22, verse 13, how does the world end? Good does not defeat evil. What happens? Evil defeats evil. That's how the world ends. That's what Nephi saw. Evil defeats evil. Good just kind of goes into the corner while evil beats up evil. We're in Zion and they're just destroying each other. That's first, right. And, then you fight them, you're just like, it's like, and you don't even have to fight them. Evil defeats evil. Now look at verse 17 through 20. What else does Nephi say? I can't tell you how it ends, but all I can say is, you don't need to worry, guys. Well, what happened? I can't tell you, but just don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. The righteous need not worry. But what I think, I think there's one verse in all of this that is absolutely golden. Jesus just said his biggest concern are the imitations that fool the very elect. And Nephi's about to tell us five. Five of the biggest false churches in our day. Five of the biggest imitation Christs that people are going to trust instead of Jesus. Verse 23. This verse is such an insight in the latter days. Nephi suggests what is one imitation that's going to fool the very elect. The church of getting gain. That money is Jesus. Money is my Savior. And I trust in money. Now, no hands, but do you know some of the very elect that have been fooled by that imitation and are caught up in that church? And that's their Messiah. The second one fascinates me, and this is a sermon for another day. Power over the flesh. I think these are the churches of addiction. There are those who believe, they put their trust in a drug, a chemical. And they are fooled by an imitation. Churches who have power over my flesh and control me because I am addicted. The church of popularity, the church of caring what other people think about me. It's crippling. And it is a church that just like the woman that has the wine, it is intoxicating. The applause of men is intoxicating. And some people are fooled by an imitation. I have watched so many good people that I love crippled because of what people think. I live my life based on other people's approval or disapproval of what I do. They have been fooled by an imitation. Rather than living my life based on pleasing my Messiah or my Heavenly Father. And one of the most damning of all the false churches, one of the most dangerous imitations to fall into is the church of lust. Fooled by an imitation. In other words, they worship the creature, not the creator. They give in to the demands of the creature rather than yielding to the demands of the creator. They have been fooled by an imitation.
And Nephi adds one more, the churches of the world. Now, pretty good list, don't you think? Pretty accurate list. And I know a lot of people that I love who have been fooled by an imitation. Some of them are my children who have been fooled by imitations. And I watch them headed towards the building and the river. Now, do you see what Jesus' concern was when he talked about the latter days? I'm worried about the very, very appealing imitations that are going to pull people of the covenant away. All right, let's get to his other concerns. We could spend a lifetime. I would love to spend a lot more time on those topics, but that's not for this class. Let's go back to Joseph Smith Matthew. So verses 21, 22, the Savior mentions, I'm worried about the latter days. People will be fooled by an imitation. And then we get to... Sorry, let me get there. Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith Matthew. Then we get to verse 28. No, sorry, 23, 28, and first part of 29. 23, 28, and the first part of 29. What's the next concern? Wars. War. War. But the Savior's prophecy is a little different than I think you're thinking. You're thinking about armies that go off and fight other armies. Let me turn with you to the Book of Mormon. Again, this is a subject for another day. Take a Book of Mormon class. Let's talk about this. The, the, our God is a God of patterns. And He loves to show us what will be by showing us what has been. The pattern of Jesus' coming in America in 3 Nephi is a perfect pattern of the second coming. His coming to America is a pattern of the second coming. Someday I'll show you all the details. You can find them which would suggest that the days before his coming in America are a pattern of the days before his coming the second time. So what book in the Book of Mormon do we live in? If we haven't hit 3 Nephi yet, what book do we live in? I think of Alma. Alma's different. I'm going to save Alma for another day. The, the, day we, the book we live in is Helaman. We live in the book of Helaman. Now, I've never met anyone that before, this, that before this conversation has ever said their favorite book of the, of the Book of Mormon is Helaman. No one ever tells me their favorite book of the Book of Mormon is Helaman because Helaman's a mess. <laughs> Alma is everyone's favorite book because Alma is not a mess, but Helaman's a mess, which tells me it's a pattern of the mess we live in before his second coming. Now, there are three major problems they face in the book of Helaman, and one of them is war. But what's different about Helaman that never happened in Alma, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, the Lamanites get where? To Zarahemla. They never got to Zarahemla under Captain Moroni. In Helaman, twice they get to Zarahemla. And I think this is a symbol. What is Zarahemla? The heart. War gets where in Helaman? To the heart. If you, again, we don't have time, but if we were to combine all the prophecies of war in the latter days, it's different. It's wars of the heart. It's slaves raising up, rising up against their masters. It's brother turning against brother. It's families turning on each other. We're not fighting wars of conquest where the motivation is greed. In our day, we are fighting wars of the heart where the motivation is anger and revenge. Now, how, where do we fight wars of conquest? really at the national and international level, right? Because it takes, it takes a whole army to go conquer a nation. 
Where do you fight wars of the heart? Do we fight them internationally and nationally? You bet. What was the whole point of the Civil War? This nation went to war over what? Conquest? Changing boundaries? Gaining land? A disagreement over rights. An issue of the heart. So do we fight national wars of the heart? Yes. But wars of the heart reach down into neighborhoods, homes. True or false, the United States is engaged in internal wars all over. <laughs> and every one of them have to do with an issue of our heart. We're not trying to win lands and change boundaries. We're trying to win rights and get even and revenge. That's what Jesus was concerned about. Not war. War that hits the heart. Was he right? Absolutely. A hundred percent right. Okay, how about the rest? How about the end of verse 29? What's another challenge about living in our day? Famines, floods, fires, natural disasters, pestilences, plagues, pandemics, earthquakes. In other words, natural, maybe not totally natural, disasters. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all over the news. If you were to look at graph of the number of earthquakes over the last 200 years, what does the graph look like? It's exponential. And that's the day in which we live. And then number four, he only mentions four, but number four, verse 30. What's another major concern about the latter days? Wickedness. The love of men waxing cold in the heart. Now, do you think Jesus understood our day? Oh my goodness. He knew. Now, long story short, he never ever says, here's the problem without, you know what he's going to do, right? Our Messiah will never say, here's my concern without, here's the solution. Now, is it all doom and gloom? Look at verse 31. Is everything in the latter days doom and gloom? Absolutely not, because what's he going to be doing? And President Nelson has said, and the Old Testament testifies, the Savior's greatest miracles are behind us or ahead of us. The greatest miracles the Savior has performed are ahead of us, not behind us. Marvelous things are coming in our day. But what do I need to do to prepare? Now, maybe I missed some few things and maybe you'll find them. Lennon. You absolutely because it's never getting worse without in some way things getting better. In order to get, go to the target. Beautiful analogy. So if I, as I read the whole rest of Joseph Smith, Matthew and say, okay, I'm looking for Jesus to say, here's the antidote. I found Maybe I missed him. You'll find more, but I found two. Two antidotes for all of these problems. The first one, and again, this is a, a subject for another day, but verse 37 is one antidote. And how many other scriptures confirm this, right? The teachings of President Nelson confirm this. What's the antidote? Treasure up the word, and you won't be deceived. It's something that uh, our, well, mine, but our, um, our bishop uh, has emphasized a lot, just in you know questions about that that it boils down to how, how do I make sure that I'm a good person? So believe, treasure Jesus Christ, treasure's word, hold on to that. Don't you? you I love the word treasure up my word. 
Not read it, not study it. Treasure up my word. And what are the sources of his word? Personal, printed, living, temple. He just summed all so much up with one sentence. Treasure up my word. That's number one. Treasure up my word. Here's number two. Ready? Why doesn't he tell us when he's coming? That's such a puzzle. Why doesn't he tell us when he's coming? Why is he so closed mouth about when? We would get ready, which would be fine unless the very best antidote for all of these is to always be ready. It is my testimony that the greatest antidote for his concerns is verse 48. Be ready. The very best way to live in 1830 was to be ready for the second coming. The very best way to not be fooled by an imitation and deal with wars of the heart is to be ready for him today. So he doesn't tell us so that we are ready. Now he's about to make a wonderful list of this is what it means to be ready. You're ready if when I came, I found you doing these things. If I find you doing these things, whenever I do come, you're ready. So he's going to make a list. Look at verse 50. Blessed is that servant whom, when his Lord cometh, shall he find so doing. So here's a list of what I want to find you doing. Now notice the chapter ends. What would be the next chapter? What would be the next chapter where Jesus is making a list of what I want to find you doing that will tell me that you're ready? Matthew 25. So many people don't make that connection. Matthew 25 is the list of what he wants to find us doing, which is really how well I am ready. So turn to Matthew 25 and tell me what you find. No more teachings, just three parables. The first one is 10 virgins. What's the point? Have oil in your vessel. What does that mean? Well, go to section 45. Before we had the Joseph Smith change of Joseph Smith 25 or 24, the Lord gave us a little trailer for it in section 45. Section 45 is the trailer for Joseph Smith Matthew, which was to come. And in section 45, he answers some of the things that we're going to see. Specifically, what does it mean to have oil in your vessel? So go to section 45 and go all the way down to verse 56 and 57. You read 45, he's making, he'll tell you, I'm going to give you more when I give you the revelation, but here's a little taste of it. He talks about the Sermon at the Mount of Olives, and then verse 56, he says, In that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. And what does it mean to have oil in their vessels? And what is probably the one most common thing President Nelson has said? You better know how to receive revelation. You will not survive spiritually in this day without the constant confirming, condoling, whatever the list was of of revelation. You will not survive unless you know how to receive revelation. And who who, who has oil in their vessels? Those who have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. And you won't be deceived. So antidote number one, to be ready. What does it mean to be ready? You're learning to follow the Holy Ghost. I know you're ready when that's what you're practicing. You're ready for the second coming. When you are practicing, receiving direction from the Holy Ghost. That's the first parable. Okay, what's the second parable?
Parable of the talents. We're going to break that into two pieces, and this will be pitfall number 10. Okay, one guy gets five talents. Now, a talent is money. This isn't an ability. This is money. I need you to invest this money. Okay, I'm going away. I need you to make me some money. Here's $5,000. Go make me some money. And the person who got five brought back, in other words, he doubled his money. I brought back 10. And the Lord said, yes, that's what I want to find you doing. I want to find you building my kingdom. I want to feel, feel, find you growing my kingdom. And if you're one of the ones that got two, I don't expect 10 from two. I expect you do your best. And if your best is a four, you know what? You're ready. Some of us are 10 talent saints who better bring back 10. And some people are two talent saints who are going to bring back four. And that's okay. So what's the second point? I want to find you building my kingdom. What would, you, what would you love to be doing when Jesus comes? I'd love to be on a mission. I'd love to be a missionary when Jesus comes. I'd love to be teaching an institute class when Jesus comes. Oh, he's here. Just a minute. We're not done. <laughs> 20 more minutes, please. 20 more minutes. Oh, come sorry, in sorry. 20 minutes. We have a guest speaker. Yes. <laughs> I would love to be building this kingdom. Now, we're going to skip the number the other the next guy that's that's our pitfall number 10 i want to go back to the so this is our we'll come back to this one but i want to go to the last parable what's the last parable in matthew 25 probably the most important if you're if you want to know what it means to be ready for the second coming here's the parable what's the parable sheep and the goats i was and hungered and you gave me meat. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, I lived in 2023. I never fed you, would have loved to. Oh my gosh, I would love to have Jesus over for dinner. I would walk a, a hundred miles to bring him a sandwich and some chips and a drink. But I live back then. And you know what he's going to say to me? You fed him. And that was me. You walked a thousand miles to bring a sandwich to him. And that was me. And you are going to get kicked out because you didn't help me. I would have helped you. Oh, if it had been you, Lord. I would have fed you. And what's he going to say? You didn't feed him. He was hungry. And that was me. You didn't take care of that one person. And that was me. Tell me what might actually be the greatest preparation for living in the latter days and awaiting his coming. Service. Service. Take care of each other. If I could pick one day in my life, you know what day I would pick? When I was on a mission, I was in Acapulco, Mexico. And when I got there, we kept hearing about this lady who was inactive. She never went to church anymore. And I was determined to go find out, go find her and bring her back. And, and we found her. She ran a, she repaired radiators. It was cool. I mean, she, the woman repaired radiators. She was tough. She was awesome. And we found out why she wasn't going to church. Her husband was in prison. And she was embarrassed. So I very sincerely said, could you take us to meet him? I'll never forget the look on her face. You want to meet? You want to go see my husband? I do. Could you set it up? Yes. 
Scariest thing I've ever done in my life. An American. Not well liked by Mexican military and Mexican police. Went to a Mexican prison. I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. And we went to see him. And we laughed, we sang, we read scriptures, we talked. We were there a whole day, a a whole day, as long as they would allow us. And then we left. On the bus ride home, I thought, this is what I want to be doing when Jesus comes. This is exactly what I want to be doing when Jesus comes. That's preparation for the second coming. It's really simple. Follow the Holy Ghost, build His kingdom, and take care of each other. Now He's going to put one more in that. These neighbors make this one so significant. These to be put in this list. Take care of others. He's going to add one more message. And by putting them in that list, just elevated this whole concept to a whole different level. So tell me about the guy who got one. Tell me about, he buried it. Why did he bury it? Okay, but what's the problem? Was he ashamed of having one? Was that the problem? He only got one, and so he's ashamed. That wasn't the problem. He was afraid of losing it. He was afraid of going back and facing the Lord with nothing. And so I would rather not try than that's his thinking. I would rather not even try than fail. Now tell me what the Lord is saying to that guy. That is not who I want in my kingdom. Nor is that how you're going to succeed in the latter days. I would rather have a people who would rather fail than be the people who didn't try. He just put that on that list. I have found that in other scriptures, but by putting it right here, he completely changed the narrative. Do you know who I want in the latter days? Do you know who's going to succeed in the latter days? Brave people who would rather go down in flames having failed than have anyone ever say, I was afraid to try. And yet, what kind of people are we? Afraid to try. Afraid to try. Why is it that most people who don't go on missions, what might be one of the main reasons people don't go on missions? Because what's going to happen on that mission? I am going to be rejected and it's going to be hard and I'm going to be in pain because it is a hard thing to do. And I'd rather not even try. Now, how many of you have seen someone beautiful, appealing, seems to have every quality you're looking for in a companion? There they are, over there in the corner, right there. And yet, if I were to come up and say, go talk to her, go talk to her, what would most people say? No, no, why not? I can't. Now, what would if, what's the worst thing if he says no? What's the worst thing? A little embarrassment, and then you know he's not my eternal companion. Move on. How is that the end of the world if he rejects you or says no? 
Why are you so afraid to try? Look at your course selection. Most of you would rather take the class I know I can get an A in than the class that will push me and test me and make me something better. I'd rather take the safe, easy class that I know I can get the A in than push myself. I'd rather not try than fail. We don't like doing new things. We don't like doing things that are uncomfortable for us. And we sit in our safe little place because we'd rather not try than fail. Now tell me what Jesus is doing by putting that story among those in this setting. If it were in any other chapter, it would be different. But putting it in Matthew 25, I hear Jesus screaming out, I need brave children who would rather go down in flames because I got laughed at or I tripped or I blew it. But no one will ever say I was a coward and I wasn't afraid to try. I want to be that people. I want people to think the Mormons are that people. Not afraid to try. Let me give you a parable. I love this parable. A long time ago in China, there was a boy named Ping who loved flowers. Anything he planted burst into bloom. Up came flowers, bushes, even big fruit trees, as if by magic. Everyone in the kingdom loved flowers too. They planted them everywhere. The air smelled like perfume. The emperor loved birds and flowers, or birds and animals, but flowers most of all. And he tended to his own garden every day. But the emperor was very old. He needed to choose a successor to the throne. Who would be his successor and how would the emperor choose? Because the emperor loved flowers so much, he decided to let the flowers choose. The next day, a proclamation was issued. All the children in the land were to come to the palace. There they would be given special flower seeds by the emperor. Whoever can show me their best in a year's time, he said, will succeed me to the throne. The news created great excitement throughout the land. Children from all over the country swarmed to the palace and get their, to get their flower seeds. All the parents wanted their children to be chosen emperor, and the children hoped they would be chosen too. When Ping received his seed from the emperor, he was the happiest child of all. He was sure he could grow the most beautiful flower. Ping filled a flower pot with rich soil. He planted the seed in it very carefully. He watered it every day. He couldn't wait to see it sprout, grow, and blossom into a beautiful flower. Day after day passed, but nothing grew in his pot. Ping was worried. He put new soil into a bigger pot. He transferred the seed into the rich black soil. Another two months he waited. Still nothing happened. By and by, the whole year passed. Spring came and all the children put on their best clothes to greet the emperor. They rushed to the palace with their beautiful flowers, eagerly hoping to be chosen. Ping was ashamed of his empty pot. He thought the other children would laugh at him because he couldn't get a flower to grow. His clever friend ran by holding a great big plant. Ping, he said, you're not really going to the emperor with an empty pot, are you? Couldn't you grow a big flower like mine? I've grown lots of flowers better than yours, Ping said. It's just that this seed wouldn't grow. Ping's father overheard this and said, you did your best and your best is good enough to present to the emperor. Holding the empty pot in his hands, Ping went straightway to the palace. The emperor was looking at all the flowers slowly one by one, how beautiful they all, all the flowers were, but the emperor was frowning and did not say a word. Finally, he came to Ping. Ping hung his head in shame, expecting to be punished. The emperor asked him, why did you bring me an empty pot? Ping started to cry and he replied, I, I planted the seed you gave me and I watered it every day, but it didn't sprout. I put it in a better pot with better soil, but still it didn't sprout. 
I tended to I tended it all year long, but nothing grew. So today I had to bring an empty pot without a flower. It was the best I could do. When the emperor heard these words, a smile slowly spread over his face. He put his arm around Ping. Then he proclaimed to one and all, I have found him. I have found the one person worthy of being emperor. Where you all got your seeds from, I do not know. For the seeds I gave you had all been cooked. It was impossible for any of them to grow. I admire Ping's great courage to appear before me with nothing but the truth. And now I reward him with my entire kingdom and make him emperor over all the land. He was the only one with the courage to say what? I tried, but I failed. Everyone else at some point grabbed or stole another flower because what were they saying? I can't fail. Jesus put that parable at a totally different level than all the other parables. It applies to marriage. It applies to everything we do in this latter days. If you want to succeed in this day, treasure his word. Know how to get the Holy Ghost. Build his kingdom. Take care of people. And be one of those few who would rather fail and be laughed at than be one of those afraid to try. Don't be the person who is so afraid of failure you're not willing to try. Change your life and be that person is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.